0: Minor Wisdom, Quintet! Oh. One, two, as kiddo did do. Minor Wisdom!
1: So this week on the podcast I have John Grimmett, and if uh, you don't know John, you probably have heard about him now, at least heard of him, maybe you don't know him, but... John is the head director at Pearland Dawson, taking over a a very prestigious department. Uh, So he had big shoes to fill with uh, Tim Monroe, but he did fill those shoes and maybe even more. I don't know Tim's uh, history of Teacher of the Year awards, but John has not been teaching very long in the grand scheme of things and is already his district's Teacher of the Year. He is a finalist for the Region 4 Teacher of the Year in secondary education that is and so he's already done quite a bit in a just a few years of teaching but as you hear this uh, podcast episode you'll hear John talk a lot about uh, what has kind of gotten him where he is now and the inspiration uh, the people that inspired him that is not just one inspiration but the people that inspired him to get to where he is now and he has a unique journey because John has a a music background. You can go to John and find out tons of information about him. Uh, he is still an active musical writer, pretty much. Um, he, he does quite a bit and I'm sure that once you hear this you'll be inspired to maybe, while we're kind of not doing much, uh, be inspired to do more and uh, to maybe get behind a computer screen and write or Uh, Just do some things that enrich your own life, because John has done an amazing job of doing that for himself, and you'll hear that again in this podcast. I'm pretty sure most of you now know, I know there are a couple of holdouts so far, but most of you now know what's going to happen with the beginning of your school year, so if you have uh, reservations or you have issues with it, uh, I hope you are resolving those, and maybe even some of you have started to... Kind of create some content for your classrooms because they're going to be very unique as as we all know uh, i hope that the people that uh that that are worried that they're not going to have enough content trust me first of all we we have a little bit of time and second of all we also uh, uh we're all in this together you know we're all we're all fighting this fight together And I hope that uh, you don't feel like you are, excuse me, that you are alone. I'm getting all choked up uh, that you are alone. You know, there were some naysayers about why couldn't we have made this decision earlier, Um, maybe even June, even May. And I even saw one or two people say something about doing it in April. Uh, The decision can't be made that quickly so that we can have an easier time getting our our work together. It can't, it just, administratively, it can't be made that quickly. Uh, Speaking as a master's of education with a certification in administration, you just can't jump the gun with that kind of decision uh, to put a certain thousand number number of thousand kids in uh, online training, online education. The state has to... Make sure that they're behind it. TEA has to make sure there are a lot. There's lots of red tape to make sure that happens. I believe most districts, uh, although they probably waited till the 11th hour, I think it was necessary that they had to wait to the 11th hour because what what happens if something changes? I sit and watch the news. It gives me horrible anxiety. But I sit and watch the news every day and watch these numbers change with this virus, and I can't figure out if these people that think it's somewhat of a hoax or, oh, it's no worse than the flu, all um, those type of people, uh, I can't figure out if sometimes, you know, they're right. Uh, they're not, but you know, you, you, you do have those moments of doubt, uh, where you think that maybe, uh, the people that you disagree with the most, you have those moments where you're like, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe things are changing because on a daily basis, Things change, and recently, on a daily basis, things change for the worse. But you know, there there are things changing with the vaccine uh, trials, and there are things changing with kind of the number of deaths. And yes, it's not actually just about deaths. Uh, my sister put it to me in a in a great way. It's not it's not about the coronavirus. It's about getting help if you need help in a hospital for anything else. Uh, and it's about open beds, and people are in waiting rooms that have injuries, some minor, some major, that are just waiting on a bed. Um, you know, heart attack patients have actually, they've, they've talked about how patients that have heart, have had heart attacks are being treated in the waiting room uh, because they have nowhere to put them. And uh, that's the kind of stuff that you have to worry about. Of course, yes, you have to worry about the virus and mask up and make sure that you're safe. But, you know, it's the it's the normal, quote-unquote, normal things that a hospital has to worry about on a day-to-day basis aside from this coronavirus that uh, we should be concerned about. There's just no space for those people. So, and hopefully I'm not talking to any of those people right now and hopefully I don't become one of those people. So uh, that would um, royally suck. So anyway, I don't want to bring anybody down. I do want you to listen to John now. John's John talked. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna be transparent, and I hope uh, uh, John's okay with that. But I, I, and I told John I, I want you to talk. That's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with it. But you will very little of me is heard in this podcast, which is why I'm trying to upload everything or front load everything. Not upload. That would be weird. Uh, front load everything with my voice because you don't hear me a lot during this interview, and that's plenty fine because. Although this is called Minor Wisdom, although it is my podcast, the point of this podcast is to hear the guest. And if that guest wants to talk about uh, their background and their inspiration, and hopefully that inspires some others, then that guest has every single right to. So you will not hear me very much. I think the first time you kind of really hear me is about an hour into the conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy uh, this interview of Mr. John Grimmett and uh, hope you get a little bit of inspiration from all of the work that he's done and continues to do and his inspirations to get where he is now as Secondary uh, Teacher of the Year in Pearland.
0: So uh, when I first started learning about theater, I read something by Udo Hagen that I then wrote down and carry around in my wallet. And the quote says, we must overcome the notion that we must be regular. It robs you of the chance to be extraordinary and leads you to mediocre. I think about that quote a lot because from where I am now uh, and looking back on my life, I think I was always meant to be involved in the arts somehow. Now I know that I was meant to be a writer um, and I've always been, I was always meant to be an artist making something or expressing myself in some way. Um, It took me a little longer to realize that I was always meant to be a teacher. And so I see the world through those lenses of an artist and a teacher mainly. And so I think in our discussion today, I would like to, I'm going to drop a lot of names of my teachers uh, just as an indicator of how many people can influence one life. Uh, I do feel that I'm, I'm indebted to these people in a lot of different ways because my background is not necessarily a traditional one coming to theater education. And so um, I try to pay homage to those people as much as I can uh, when I get to talk about how I ended up not only teaching theater, but par- participating in making theater um, in, in today's world. I think thinking back to my childhood, I was just always naturally curious. I love space. I love storytelling. Um, I love drawing. I was not very good at drawing. Uh, I didn't consider any sort of talent in drawing, but doodling was just kind of something I did. Um, I think a lot of kids start out doing that. Um, And I also had a fascination with presidents, thanks to my father. My parents really were my first teachers um they are actually teachers Uh, they have careers in in public school education so my mother spent um just ended her 40 plus year career as a speech language pathologist and my dad retired about seven or eight years ago now um as a a longtime school administrator Uh, he started off as an elementary school teacher and then worked his way up um in into administration uh, and he ended up being the superintendent of Danbury ISD, which is a, a small 2A, uh, might be 3A now, uh, school district in uh, in between Angleton and, and the Alvin area. Uh, really, though, because my parents were who they were, they they encouraged my curiosity uh, and. Uh, they both had really different upbringings. My mom is is really from an upper middle class family. Uh, every every one of her siblings uh, studied instruments and music and literature, and she graduated. And it was an expectation for her to go to college, um, and so she entered into the University of Houston in the seventies originally as a violinist to study with the late Fredel Lack. Um, and she ended up changing her major to do speech-language pathology um, it, in, in sort of a related twist of things. Uh, uh, she, she likes to claim that her musical training actually gave her all the skills necessary to be a successful teacher. Uh, my dad comes from a very different background. So he, uh, he was born the youngest of four sons, um, to my grandmother and my grandfather. And when he was two years old, my grandfather passed away from undiagnosed renal disease. And so he grew up without a dad and spent most of his childhood and adolescence moving from Missouri to California to Texas. He eventually, that's where he met my mother. Um, and they were both really young, 18, 19, 20 years old and they got married. And Um, he was working at a hardware store and decided, you know, because my mom was going to college and had finished a degree and entered into education, he was going to do that too. And so both my parents worked their way through school and both of them had master's degrees. And the reason I you know, ended up with master's degrees before I was born, before my sister was born, she's five years older. And so I bring this up in the story of education because I'm very aware of my privilege um, when it comes to my my place and my being in theater education today. I, I realize that a lot of people come into education um, in the from a variety of, of fascinating and different backgrounds. But I was really fortunate that my parents were the first ones um, to be my teachers in this way and to encourage curiosity and to encourage education in our household. To be intelligent was the most valuable aspect of my childhood, to be well-read, to talk about ideas, to form opinions, all with the values of helping others. Um, I think that when we talk about Ovation uh, Theater uh, at Dawson High School, where I am now, I really look back to these early moments because the values of helping others is really what I preach to my students every day. Um, You know, I had wonderful teachers growing up as well. My first grade teacher is one of my favorite teachers of all time. Her name was Miss McMillan, and she had a bunch of taxidermied animals in her classroom. And so for a kid with like ADD, uh, it was great because I could go in there and just kind of wander around. And, you know, she read a story. She encouraged curiosity. When I was growing up, my parents took us to theater. They took us to concerts, but it was it was rare because I grew up in West Columbia, and then I moved to Alvin um, when I was ten years old. And so, instead, I I lived in these kind of rural suburban places um, where I only had books and recordings. So I I was in my imagination the entire time. I didn't realize it at the time, but now as an adult, I'm looking back and. You know, theater kind of just, it, everything points to being involved in the theater in some way. Um, so I enter into junior high and high school, and I'm not an athlete. Like my dad was. <laughs> my dad was played football, basketball. He he kind of was a, a athletic chameleon. Um, I could not understand. Like if I didn't intellectually understand how football worked, and I didn't until I was in college. Um, you know, it was it was embarrassing. You know, an embarrassing part of my adolescence. And so I I instead tried to do everything else. You know, I did play football. I did play. Um, sorry, my TV turned on. Just right that's
1: in the middle all right. of that it's okay it's got a it's, okay. uh, hey alexa that's, yeah <laughs>
0: that's all right it's weird you know it's like being at home you never know what's gonna happen but, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, anyway my uh i i decided to do everything else and you know i was a part of you know student government and you know nerdy book clubs and all that other stuff uh i got into band when i was in sixth grade sixth, seventh, and eighth grade and i had a wonderful junior high band director katie bachelor um, who really just encouraged me. She was the reason I wanted to do band in high school, but also to become a band director. She was the first person I saw in my life that was so passionate and engaging with what she did. And so I often credit her as, as kind of my first influence of being aware of being involved in music uh, in, in, in the long term. Um, I also... So, you know, I also tell people now, my first encounter with UIL one-act play was when I was in junior high until I directed, you know, years later. Um, And I did it because I was tall. um, I was lanky and awkward. And the play we were doing was Scipino. And uh, I played Geronte. And we went to Friendswood High School. And uh, in the middle of the play, my pants ripped open. And I didn't know what to do, like a junior high boy with your pants, you know, the crotch of your pants ripping open uh, is a terrifying, you know, kind of social nightmare. And uh, I kind of just improvised and made it a a part of the gig. And the audience died laughing. And I ended up getting honorable mention All-Star cast and was kind of this big joke in my family for a while because I had no... Intention of ever being a performer. Um, I ended up in high school performing in musicals simply because I was in band and choir, and really, you know, the band uh, was was my outlet. It Was what I did. I played trombone. I did region band, all state, all that stuff. Um, And then I became uh, the drum major of the marching band as a sophomore. And so I did that for three years. And I had great band directors. I had Greg Goodman, who's now the fine arts director at Clear Creek ISD, Chad Bowen, Andres Aya, uh, who I think Andres now works at Stephen F. Austin, maybe, with Ryan Demkovich, but uh, he was he was like a first year teacher when <laughs> when I was uh, when I would, he was uh, part of our band program at Alvin High School, and then my choir director who whose name was Miss Music that was her name. Uh, so it was like I had all these great teachers who inspired me to be uh, to be involved in in music. And at the same time, I was really drawn to literature, you know, and storytelling. Uh, so I had great English teachers, DJ McHenry and Brotherton, Donna Polly. They all encouraged my love of literature and storytelling, in um, poetry. And uh, and a government teacher, um, Mary Stimson, who is still at Alvin High School, um, and Miss Polly is still at Alvin High School as well. Who really said that the the role of art is is necessary and vital in a functioning society and so I I took that all in you know I was I was I just had really really great teachers in high school and um when I was a senior junior and senior in high school I had to decide what it is I wanted to do and I I said I'm going to be a band director so I started studying with uh Brian Kalk who is the trombone professor at U of H and One thing led to another and I go to U of H and I was there for about a year and I started having a few realizations. Um, Not much had changed from the time I was in junior high and high school. I wanted to do everything as much as possible in my undergraduate. So I was in the honors college. I, you know, I joined two music fraternities, a service fraternity and a social fraternity. And I wanted to be involved with, The wind ensemble, the opera, the jazz band, the orchestra—I mean, I did everything, um, and you know, I was just trying to get the most out of the experience. And so, I would bounce around to a couple of different ideas of what I actually ended up wanting to do. You know, I—I I wanted to be a band director because those were the role models I had in my life: Miss Bachelor, Mister Goodman, those people. Um, but you know. I, I didn't know if I was actually a good teacher or not, like I'd grown up around teachers. So I just assumed like, well, I'll just go get my education degree. My sister behaved in the very same way. And she was successful at the junior high teaching English where she was and then she she uh, got married, moved out to Beaumont, she's still teaching. And so teaching was just an ingrained kind of in in me. And so um, I I didn't think I didn't know if I was actually a good teacher or not, you know, it, it wasn't like wanting to be a teacher. It was just kind of part of what was the plan, you know, and so I started You know, in college, it's natural for a lot of undergraduate students to kind of think, well, maybe there's life outside of this, you know? (laughs) And so I toyed with the idea of being an English major, um, because I was in, in the Honors College, and they make you take this class called the Human Situation, where you read everything from Plato to, you know, other things, you know, just all sorts of the reading list is kind of crazy. And it's really stressful for 19 year olds, you know, to kind of go through this course, but it's a rite of passage and doing that. And so um, I had this great professor named Dr. Stacy Peebles and uh, she Uh, was fascinated with violence and literature and Cormac McCarthy and all this stuff. And like, I hate scary movies at all. I hate gore, I hate all that stuff. And so um, I I just found her such a a, a eccentric and wonderful character. And she was so smart and encouraging. And um, she would always allow these creative options for you to, so instead of writing like a research paper, she was like, here's the creative option. And so we were studying Dante's Inferno and she said, write your own version. And so I did. And um, I didn't know what, like when I got done with the experience, it was very, like I still remember it, it's very vivid in my brain. I got done with it and I said, well, what do I do with this thing? I made this thing, you know? And I had written poems before, but there was kind of like adolescent poetry, you know? It wasn't, you know, I love her, she doesn't love me back sort of thing, <laughs> you know? It wasn't anything serious. But this was, there was something about this I couldn't quite put my, my finger on and I turned it in and <laughs> the next last period, she hands everything out and there is like a big red mark. It's like every student's worst nightmare that's like, come see me, right? And so I went and saw her and she said, um, I, I just want to say, this is really good. And I was like, "No way!" And she was like, "Yeah." In fact, I shared it with the dean, and so I, of course, then I'm like appalled, you know, uh, because I had no idea that that she thought that. But it, it kind of opened this brain, like, this part of my brain. Well, what if I was a writer? What if it I, I was a storyteller in some sort of way? Um, and so that stayed with me. That was my first year at U of H. Um, and then other things happened my first year, you know, like I saw, um, a, a vocal recital for the first time. Like, can you imagine that? Like seeing someone singing, uh, in an era, like I didn't grow up around YouTube or much less cell phones, you know? So it's like the first time I saw an actual singer in a vocal recital, um, was Catherine Shizinski, uh singing uh, Samuel Barber's Knoxville Summer 1915. And I was, it, it felt like electricity had gone through my entire body um, seeing this this woman sing this. And so I became interested in how does that work? How does the music work? Uh, how does the text to the music work? And so I started, you know, I took composition lessons on the side with, uh, Rob Smith and David Ashley White, who at the time was the, the, uh, Dean of the music school at the Moore school of music. And, um, he, uh, you know, they were my first teachers in, in writing music for, you know, later I would learn the theater or for the voice. And so, um, that became really interesting, uh, to me and that kind of been in my first or second year there. Um, as I continued throughout the music coursework, there were other teachers that I latched onto. Um, I had a theory professor who was writing a book on opera. Um, his name was uh, Dr. Davis, Dr. Andrew Davis. Now I think he is the dean of the College of the Arts at, at U of H, but back then he was my theory one professor, and uh, he was writing this book on on Giacomo Puccini and said, you know, I need a research assistant uh, to kind of help, you know, do boring stuff like just cite things. And I thought it was curious because I was around. The material and an expert who knew a lot of things about Pugini and so I uh, I told him I'd help him out and um, then I met Dr. Howard Pollack who was our um, who's still a really good friend to this day um, who's my music history three professor which is like everything 20th century you know and his specialty was actually on musical theater composers and 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 um after written, ha- having written books on people like Aaron Copeland, he had just finished a book on George Gershwin. And these are like 800 page books you know, on, on George Gershwin. And um, he had started a book on Mark Blitzstein when I had met him. And so I helped him on the Blitzstein book when I was at U of H. Later, when I moved to New York, I would I would continue to help Dr. Pollock on his books. He wrote one on the um, uh, li- lyricist and librettist John Latouche who is best known for his contributions to Candide um, and the golden apple. And there's a few other uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, books he, he became available, uh, he was working on. Um, and so uh, I continue to work with with Howard on his research and I got to met, meet him. Uh, I wanted to play my instrument better. So I would learn, uh, you know there was one summer I studied with Joseph Alessi who was the principal of the New York Philharmonic you know I was really lucky to to go to this conference that he was teaching at and and learn from him directly and you know it was interesting conducting I mean there's just tons of things uh in the in the terms of instrumental pedagogy like teaching instruments I learned from David Burtman and John Benzer and Eddie Green on how to teach skills to instrumentalists. And this was so profound later when I would teach theater because I could translate those skills of how to teach instruments to actors, right? David too has a palpable sense of theatricality if you've ever met David Burtman. And he always wanted to put on the show. He was in charge of the marching band at first. Um, When I first showed up at U of H and and you know, so he was all about showmanship and marching band and um, Every year we did this thing called the marching band benefit concert uh, in the Opera House at U of H and about the second year we did a skit with the trombones and we called it the bone town skit and I came out dressed like him uh, but I had like shoved a whole bunch of pillows in my shirt and made him look real fat and unsightly. And so it was like a, a parody and a comedy and that became a running gag. And then when I was like a senior, he was like, okay, this year, you're going to direct the show. And so that was kind of like my, you know, I was doing musical reviews by the time I ended at U of H. Um, there was also a, our band secretary who has since passed away was a wonderful woman named Carol Reisinger. Um, she was kind of like our band mom. And one, uh, spring break I went to New York and went to FAO Schwartz and they used to have these puppets, you know like uh, where you could make your own puppet or something. And so I looked at um, I, I got one that looked like Carol and she became Miss Carol. she became a character and so I would take her to parties and we would have party with Miss Carol or you know she became part of the Marching band benefit concert. And so I was doing theater related things in my undergraduate and it was just a really great time um, in my music building, but I got to this point where I just wasn't happy. There was something that that wasn't fulfilling me in the same way because as I was going through the coursework, I knew it was going to end and I was going to have to enter into a field that I didn't feel genuinely committed to. And so I felt ungrateful for feeling that way, given all of the wonderful teachers I had had up until that point. But truth was, at that I was also the drum major in college college, I hated marching band. Like I just hated it. And, and the difference, you know, going back to my parents for a second, but my, my mom was, because I was kind of curious about everything. My mom was just like, ah, well, if this is what you want to do, you're going to figure it out. That was her whole approach. But my dad really instilled in me, like, it's not enough to be curious. You have to be excellent. Right. Going back to this whole quote about, you know, from utah Hagen, we must overcome the notion that we must be regular, right? My dad was all about the standard of excellence and I wasn't going to sit in a practice room for 12 hours a day and practice the trombone, hoping that I would audition for, you know, one of 75 spots across the country in a symphony orchestra. You know, that just wasn't my personality. I wasn't going to do that. And I felt really ungrateful about that. Um... And so I w- there was this time where I was just kind of walking around U of H as a young person, and there was this woman smoking a cigarette on the corner of the building. And, you know, she's an older woman, but she was always had the most fabulous makeup on and, and you know, jewelry and everything. And I would come to find out, I would just talk to her while she was sitting there smoking on the porch. Um, and that was Ann Ostro. Um, who was the wife of, of Stuart Ostrow, uh, the, the producer uh, who was on faculty in the theater school. And she said, you're such a good looking guy. That's what she said to me. Uh, Do you sing? And I was like, no, uh, I don't. Uh, and she goes, have you ever tried? And I, so I said, well, no. I said, but I am interested, you know, I am interested in musical composition, kind of like the way songs are written, you know, and I love musicals. I love theater. Um, but it's just, it was never a career path. And so she invited me up, you know, it was like once a week for two and a half years, I would go sit in her little practice room and we would just take apart songs. You know, it, we, we studied Sondheim and, Richard Rogers and Irving Berlin and Cole Porter. And, you know, of course I start in Sondheim. I start at the end, you know, work my way backwards, but, um, and I got to hear stories about her living in New York and what it was like when Stuart was working on Pippin in 1776. And so then she introduced me to Stuart and I got into Stuart's class. Well, this all happened around the same time that my advisor noticed this, her name was Carrie Young. And she was like, I need to to um uh, tell you there's this guy coming to teach playwriting at u of h next semester um and his name is edward Albee, and uh you should take his class and i was like sure edward Albee. like I, i didn't i mean up to this point i had only read three plays in my entire life it was hamlet uh hamlet a glass menagerie in our town right uh which there aren't three bad plays that that's not three bad plays if that's the only thing I had read. But, you know, i written read all this literature. I was I was poetry and novel-based, and I really didn't have a, a good foundation in what dramatic literature was. And so part of the application was you had to fill out this uh, application and turn it in uh, along with the play you've written. Well, I never wrote a play before in my life, so I just wrote something, you know, and it was embarrassing, and it was like a... Yeah, I think it was part of a musical or or something. like I I honestly don't even remember what I wrote because I was just trying to meet the deadline. So I turned in the play and uh, got a letter back from Rob Shimko, who was teaching dramaturgy and playwriting at the time. He wasn't the director of the the theater school yet. And he said... um, you, you have been chosen for Mr. Albee's class. And I was like, great. You know, like, I, again, I didn't understand what that meant. I had no con- context. And so of course I show up to the first day and I'm always, you know, 20 to 25 minutes early in person. It's something I inherited from my dad. And so no one's there yet. And I walk in and there's this old man sitting at a table and he says, "Are you here for Edward Albee's class?" And I said, "Yes, I am." And he said, "Oh, good." And He said, "So am I." Uh, and so we started this whole conversation where he was asking me about myself, and then asking about what you know, you know, what I just kind of my background. And so I was just being friendly and talking with him, not really not realizing that I was actually talking to Edward Albee. <laughs> you know. And so that everyone, you know, the class people would trickle in and I was one of two undergraduate, uh, two or three undergraduate students in that class. And I was the only non-theater, you know, person. Everyone else was in in the theater school or they were, you know, graduate students in the creative writing program or or whatever. And so I um, I had a great facility to talk about literature uh, in the in the class. But, you know, he essentially made us. Read a, a a reading list, and we come in and talk about the plays. And then there was a playwriting workshop where we would work on the play we submitted. So I was naturally terrified um, because the play I'd submitted was so bad. So I actually asked in that first year I took the course with him if I could uh, change my play. And so I I took I rewrote another play, and we ended up doing that in class and. Uh, the first director I worked with was Clinton Hopper, who, is, you know, taught at Dobe for a while and now is the assistant principal at Dobie. And so Clinton and I became friends and Clinton taught me a lot of things by working on that play together. Um, so that was great. Um, having Edward in my life, you know, I, I cultivated a friendship with him that lasted until his death. in in 2016. So it was about a six year relationship. I I first took his class in 2010. And, you know, I have tons of stories uh, about what Edward meant to me, but to kind of summarize that whole experience was that I learned theater from kind of its most base parts backwards. (laughs) You know, I started with Uh, One of the preeminent playwrights of the 21st century and then works my way back with the sole notion that if you want something to exist, you have to create it yourself. And so that was my I mean, that's colored my entire life um, being in his class. And he's perhaps one of my, you know, I attribute everything I know and continue to learn from from those two years I took in Edwards course. And from there I met, you know, I, I took a class with Rob Shemko and I met Jackie DeMontemoyen and, and informally studied dramaturgy and talked about theater. And I was seeing shows at the alley and, you know, I knew I wanted to do theater and, uh, but I still wasn't, I didn't know what that looked like. And so, you know, that meant I was going to graduate school. I wasn't going to, uh, to enter into, Teaching or a job or anything, I just needed to go explore this part of myself. And so, if I had any talent, right, because I mean, here I am a music student, I didn't know anything about theater. And so, I put out some applications to graduate school and um, got accepted into New York University's graduate musical theater writing program. Uh, which the moment I stepped foot uh, into that program, I was like, "This is where I should be." <laughs> it became very clear uh, because you know it was just such a wonderful place about uh, that used all my background in music and all the things I loved about theater, and they didn't define what musical theater should be in the 21st century. Uh, you know, they wanted us to discover that, and it became a, a laboratory of ideas. And so I first got accepted as a as a lyricist and a playwright, um, which was shocking to me <laughs> uh, because I, I I clearly, I applied this both as a composer and a lyricist and a playwright. Um, but um, this next part might, what I'm about to say about my class, might understand why I wasn't accepted as a composer at first. But midway through the summer, they called me and they said, well, actually, we had one of our Our lyric or composer students back out and we know that you wanted to study composition Do you still want to study composition? I said yes, um, because I felt like I had the experience of writing uh, Plays with Edward and that was strong (laughs) in my opinion. And so I wanted to explore my musical side um, more specifically And so the class I was in was called Cycle 22, and it was the biggest class New York, uh, the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program had had to date. There was 42 of us, I think, which is crazy because the whole first year is about collaborating and working together, and so, you know, some of the people who are in my class, and I wish I could name all of them, but there's 42 and I'm not. But some people that you might recognize that are floating around the New York theater scene today are like Audia Moan, Julia Gittry, Nicole Ben, Nico Benson, uh, Ben Halstead, Max Vernon. He wrote The View from Upstairs, uh, which was his thesis project in my class that now people are, are seeing it you know when you go to Fest Fest it was weird to see the view from upstairs there because it was like oh I was in the room when that was being made you know uh there's Helen Park, Tataya Sinatoque, Ty Defoe, Nolan Duran you know these are just really good friends of mine and classmates and we all just all 42 of us really created a very strong bond um and they've gone on to do things like uh when the dramatist skilled fellowships and the Johnson Larson grants Richard Rogers Awards um, these were the people I were I was challenged and stimulated by every day um, and I had the fortune you know they always have like a class president and I came in um, not expecting to be the class president or even wanting to run but I have a, a propensity of making bad jokes and I made a bad joke that everyone laughed at like in the first 30 seconds of meeting each other. And so I think that socially they were just like John will be our class president, <laughs> and so I was I was a class president for uh, for our cycle, and it was just a, cr- a crazy time. I mean, I had these great people teaching us. Uh, I mean. You can look them up on the internet, but I mean, there's Sarah Schlesinger, Fred Carl, Robert Lee, Mel Marvin, who wrote The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. You know, Donna Di Novelli and Randall Ng, who work both in opera and both in musical theater. Michael John LaCusa, who uh, with Sybil Pearson, Sybil was also one of our teachers. He recently wrote Giant. I mean, he's written a thousand pieces. Hello Again. The other Wild Party that people know, um, if, if you're not talking about Andrew Lippa, uh, in, in my opinion, I prefer uh, Lacusa's Wild Party. I think that's kind of a litmus test in musical theater as to what camp you fall on under. Uh, we had Kirsten Childs, Rachel Scheinkin, who wrote the book Dispelling Bee. Um, and then they also taught us business side of things. So we had Sean Flavin, who is the chief theatrical executive of Concord, um, theatricals. He was one of my teachers. Uh, Larry Maslin taught us history. Um, Jack Ruttell, who is part of G Jameson Theater and runs Encores, um, he he taught us, you know, the structure of classic musicals. I mean, just who gets to do this stuff? I was just my head was kind of spinning. Um, on top of that, NYU was such a great lab because we could go in there and I I was learning from actual people. Judith Light. John Weidman, Susan Birkenhead, Jerry Zachs, Bruce Coughlin. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda came once and rapped about my my friend Avi, who I mentioned. I mean, well, Avi beatboxed, because that was Avi's thing. I mean, we had actors like Uzo Aduba, Andrew Samansky, Alex Gimignani, Lisa Howard, Michael Kilgore. These were the people who now I turn on the Tonys and I see them performing, you know? And so just a really magical time um, being at NYU and, and writing and getting to explore what it is and who you are. Uh, and, and, and it's a, a pertinent thing. And I can't speak about those two years without just feeling a sense of, of wonder about it because it is, it, it's really, really a magical time. And uh, I also met this man who uh, later served as a, a witness when my husband and I got married. Uh, but, and his husband, uh, Joe, uh, his name is Eric Hoganson. And Eric was an alum of Cycle 2. Now, I was Cycle 22. But at the time, Eric was also the critic for Backstage Magazine when they had had criticism. And I met Eric through Howard Pollock on his book on John Latouche. (laughs) This is how all interconnected it was uh, years later. And um, he took me to see every show uh, that he had an extra ticket for. Um, And so I got this crazy side education by seeing everything on Broadway, off-broadway, off-off-broadway from about 2011 to 2015. I saw everything. And um, I got to, you know, Eric was also a writer. So we would go to dinner beforehand or coffee afterwards, and we would talk about the shows and how they were constructed. And so it just kind of naturally played into my, into my curiosity. I promise I'm, I'm getting to the end of this hopefully. Cause I do want, want to talk about, <laughs> I want to talk about Pearland ISD and, 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 uh, my work at Dawson, yeah. but it, it's important to understand these as kind of my influences as to what I'm trying to do today. Um, you know, it, 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 when I was at NYU, a few things happened that, that were important, um, in terms of my professional career, one of my teachers, Randall Ng, who was our opera kind of specialist took me to a concert, um, with the composer Jake Hege. Uh, And Jake and I had met briefly before a production of his down here in Houston, a Houston grand opera, when I was an undergraduate student. Jake is one of the kindest person, uh, people I've ever met. Um, he, uh, he's so giving of his time and wants to encourage young writers. And so, of course, naturally, when Randall invited me to this concert, I was like, well, I'm gonna go, you know, I'd, I'd love to see Jake. And so I reconnected with Jake and a few weeks later, Jake sent me an email and said, you know, John, it was so good seeing you at the concert and I'm glad to hear you're at NYU as a writer. Have you ever written an opera libretto before? And I was like, no. <laughs> uh, but I didn't say it quite like that. I was like because I didn't know why he was asking me and I I said well um, You know, I I've written lyrics and I've written this and you know I'll, I'll send you a few things I've written and so I did and he wrote me back and said this is great Um, I, you know, thank you for sharing it with me I'd like to connect you with this composer named liam wade Um, he has gotten a commission from Washington National Opera uh, to participate in this program they have started, which is now, I think, in its eighth or ninth year called the American Opera Initiative. And um, they're looking for, Liam needs a librettist. So maybe y'all meet, and if y'all hit it off, y'all can work together. Well, we met, and we worked together, and we created this opera for the first class of the American Opera Initiative at Washington National Opera. And I met... Uh, other people involved in opera like Mark Campbell and Francesca Zambello who uh you know Mark is probably the the most employed opera librettist <laughs> in the United States today and and Francesca Zambello uh at the time was taking over Washington National Opera. And uh, this was before I think she was working at Glimmerglass. So she was a, a big person, um, a big name that I got to know and just really great experience. And I was 24 years old having a performance at the Kennedy Center. I couldn't believe it, um, of, of, of one of my works. And so uh, what that was right in the middle of my NYU program. And uh, through Liam, I also met the singer named Ann Moss, who was an amazing teacher to me. Uh, She's a soprano who lives in San San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, that was a whirlwind of a year. I finished up at NYU uh, writing a musical with uh, a writer named Jason Carlson. I wrote the music and he wrote the lyrics, um, as opposed to when I worked with Liam, I was writing the words and Liam was writing the music. So I was, I was getting kind of an experience of all things. And we wrote this piece called rain down the ruin, uh, which was a a musical about soldier suicide, um, which, uh, you know, I joke because when we tried to, to pass it around, this was all before Dear Evan Hansen and everything. One producer looked me at the in the face and said, oh, is there a tap number in it? <laughs> and I said, no, it's not that kind of piece. you know." So uh, anyway, it, it, it had success. Uh, it had a workshop at NYU the summer after I graduated and then ended up going to Indiana University for a time um, with a young man named Robert Heller directing. Uh, that last year at NYU, I broke my ankle while we were at a, a residency in, in the Speed Opera House. And so uh, in the middle of all of that, I, I had to finish up the musical and attend workshops while being on crutches and trying to get out of my apartment in New York and um, You know, it was just a crazy time uh, at the end of NYU. I had, you know, while I was on uh, pain medication uh, from breaking my ankle, I submitted this speech of they have this student speaker contest and the winner gets to speak at Radio City Music Hall at the graduation. And I did it kind of as a, you know, as something to do while I was waiting for my ankle to heal. And they selected me to to give the speech. And so uh, I was so nervous the day because there's 6,000 people. Um, And again, I'm not a performer in any sense. And so uh, I had to perform essentially this the speech in front of everyone. And as I'm walking down, I'm like, I'm past Denzel Washington and Bono, you know, like, cause they had like family members. I was going like, oh my God, like, this is crazy. Uh, I can't even believe, and, and I did shake Denzel Washington's hands. He has the softest human hand. Uh, known to man, uh, he's really a, a nice person, and so uh, I just had crazy experiences like that right out of of school. I uh, got to be a part of this thing called the Marvin Hamlish Broadway Conductors Workshop through uh, the American Society for Composers, Arrangers, and Publishers, also known as ASCAP. Um, they, uh, which is a crazy name, but I, I digress. Uh, they uh, they had a workshop where I got to go in and work with uh, the pit musicians from wicked and singers. And we talked about Broadway conductors and, um, you know, all of this happened like a week in, in a week on, uh, you know, my last week at NYU. And then on Monday, I started work after I graduated uh, with my first job in New York city. And my job experience in New York city was less than ideal because I was looking for a job that kept me afloat while also writing. So I was working in nonprofits, arts education, um, for about six months, and then I worked at a preschool for the remaining time that I was in New York. And I made so little money, but it was an important, um, an important way that I could keep writing, you know. And it allowed me to travel if I could, Um, you know. After this conductor's workshop that I. I had in that week uh, one of the contractors that was at the workshop came to me and said if you want it you can go on the national tour of Les Mis as the conductor and it required you to play the keyboard three part and I am NOT a keyboardist you know <laughs> my, my main instruments trombone I could have played the trombone part but not a keyboard uh, and so you know I turned it down could I have probably learned the Keyboard 3 part to Les I don't know. It would be incredibly arrogant of me to assume that I could. Uh, but, you know, I just decided I wanted time. I needed freedom to explore, you know, trying, trying to create a career as a writer. Um, and again, I was only 24, 25 years old, so I had time. Um, and in that time, I realized that the six months I, I worked in the nonprofit um, before they more or less got rid of some of the benefits of the position, uh, which is why I left. I, I really did like working in nonprofit, so you know, I got my nonprofit management cert- certification um, to continue working on that. Um, so, all of this happened till about 2014. My partner moved from Houston to New York at the time. His name's Edgar, he's now my husband. Uh, he's a graphic designer and got a job immediately, uh, which I was always enviable, uh, but also grateful about. Um, and really, we were just scraping by. We we loved taking little trips out of the city and enjoying the culture and going to museums and going to concerts and and taking in everything. It was just a, w- a really great time. And I happened to be visiting uh, Jake later, Jake Heggie out in San Francisco, when he asked me to be his assistant for the summer. Um, and this was 2015. He essentially uh, had written, you know, he'd written all these operas. And you can look at his, his Wikipedia page. Uh, I helped him write it, uh, you know, to see what he what, what all he's done. But he needed all of these. He writes everything by hand. And so he had all these scores that the Library of Congress wanted and he needed someone to help organize it. And so all my experience from working with Dr. Davis and Dr. Pollack at U of H kind of came into play there um, and working with Eric on, on, on the Latouche book for Howard um, all of my research skills kind of came into play because that's why I got the job with Jake. And so I went, I decided to quit my job at the preschool um, here in, you know, New York and and go. And um, at that time I also I uh, had a, a piece with a composer named Charlie Halka that won the Frontiers competition at Fort Worth Opera. And so that was all around the same time. And I met Darren Woods and his husband, Stephen, who is a, a makeup and wig designer, who taught me everything I know about makeup and, and what little I know about, still know about wigs. Um, David Gately, who's a director there, these were all my teachers, you know, in the professional realm. And so um, I did frontiers that was in 2014 and I would win again in, in 2016, 2017, uh, with another composer named Dan Zajic. So I had two really great experiences with Fort Worth, uh, opera. And also during that summer, Ann Moss, who I met through Liam, uh, the soprano was working on an album at, uh, Skywalk sound, which is where they record uh, you know, all the Star Wars albums and movie albums and different things like that. And so um the, the producer out there was a, a producer named Leslie Ann Jones, and the Anne's album uh was called Love Life, and she asked me to write an arrangement for uh, the Beatles tune I've just seen a face, um, that was performed by by Chanticleer uh and a male a cappella group. And so that's what I did that summer. I worked with Jake, I worked with Ann, uh, I did Frontiers when the time came, and I had every intention of returning to New York City. Um, But you know, because I'm always, I was always kind of looking for the next gig, I, I had contacted Greg Goodman, my high school band director, who then was the fine arts director at Austin ISD, and I had contacted Tom Bell in Pearland ISD, Uh, because Tom was my student, I student taught with him when I was at U of H. And I was kind of seeing like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to end up in New York City or where I'm going, I have an intention of going back, but maybe I'm ready to start teaching. I don't know. Uh, Maybe, you know, I was not made for corporate Preschool sales, <laughs> you know, I, that, that was very clear to me. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of investigate that part of my life, and so I reached out to them, and there were there weren't any uh, positions available in in Austin at the time. But you know, Greg has always been like, anytime you want to come work with me, come on, you know, because he he knows me from when I was sixteen years old, you know. Um, but and and Tom said, well, actually, there is a there is a theater position open and I had gotten my certification in theater and in English because I thought, well, maybe I'll start teaching in New York city public schools, which, you know, is run through the city government and they don't usually hire fine arts teachers, um, you know, in the same way that Texas does, <clears throat> they outsource those to outside organizations. And so my, I figured my way into a drama program would be through English or something. And so I got both of those certifications, and I already had them. and And Tom said, "Well, there's this position at, at at a junior high here in in Pearland," and so I interviewed for it, and I ended up getting it. And around the same time, Edgar, my husband, um, was going to get his master's degree at FIT. And so that's a three year program. And I said, well, you know, it's good to be out of our 625 square foot (laughs) apartment in New York. We might kill each other if you're trying to go through graduate school. Uh, So I moved back to Texas and to start teaching at East and uh, Pearland Junior High East. And they hadn't had a theater program at that school in, a number of years, and so they they wanted me to take it over, and they were starting their junior high one act play program, and you know I knew nothing about the ins and outs of one act play, and so um, you know my first mentor in all of this was Tim Munro, and so he kind of became my teacher, and I uh, went and saw shows at Dawson, and my jaw would hit the floor because I would just say, this looks like Broadway, this looks like, how does he do that? How does he get the kids to do that? Um, it, it it sparked my curiosity and and trying to figure out what it is he, he was doing in that program. And so I blew up his phone uh, annoyingly for two years on how I could learn how to do what he was doing. Um, I was also, you know, one of my other co-workers that got hired at the same time was a a lady named Tracy Phillips who just retired and she is one of my best friends. And I learned so much from her um, as a junior high teacher and the art teacher on my campus, Catherine Ramirez, she was amazing. So anything I needed, you know, I kind of, I was trying to figure out my way on how to make this thing my own for the kids, you know, and that was the biggest lesson I learned was am I ready to be a teacher was not the right question to ask. The question to ask was, "Am I the right teacher for these kids?" and making the kids the center of every decision every every uh possibility was really something that that Tim impressed on me early on, and that's what i, I, I uh, you know put at the focus uh when I started working at East and I remember like not knowing anything about how to do anything. I didn't know how to run a light board. I didn't know how to paint colors. I didn't know what I was doing anything because it's one thing to write a story, but it, other thing to make it happen and so you know my first UIL clinic I ever had was with Kelly Lawrence and she gave us this list of things to do and it was so helpful and then I started asking I was like well there there must be other people you know besides Kelly Warrens. who are these people and so you know I learned about Travis Poe and Larry Wisdom Allison Frost Kathy Padrell, Rod Sheffield Stuart Savage Josh and Abby Harriman Billy and Annie Dragoo. I mean the list goes on you did to know all these people by logging on to the Facebook UIL one-act play page and it wasn't that one at play was the the thing for me because it is not the thing for me. Um, it's not my end goal or my priority, but it was how do these people who run their, how do they run their programs? How do they put on shows? What do those shows look like? Um, you know, what can I learn? What do I like about them that I can learn and, and translate into me? Because I have this, very strange and weird story (laughs) of coming into being. And so those first two years at East, I learned everything I could and I was alone. So I had time. Um, In some ways it was really difficult because, um, and it remained difficult until Edgar got done with his program uh, because I was flying back to and forth to NYC. And I remember 2016 and 17 was one of the biggest, busiest years I ever had because my outside work, as a writer, like I had a performance every month. I was flying to Baltimore, I was doing this. I was, you know, so junior high theater was good for me because I could wrap things up on a Friday afternoon, hop on a plane, go where I needed to go, and, you know, be back before school started on Monday. Um, And, it was just, it was, it was nuts, you know? Uh, And I tried to learn everything that I could and I relied on my individual uh, training, you know, thinking back to those days with David Burtman and John Benzer and Eddie Green and how they taught instrumental pedagogy, you know? Uh, And how am I going to translate that to actors? How am I going to translate that to seventh and eighth grade students? So I did Pygmalion for my first one at play um because I had the boy for it um and well, I had the girl for it too um and so we did Pygmalion for my first one act play never done one act play prior to this other than Geronte and, and Scapino and I ended up winning and it was crazy to me because I was just like well I'm just doing now there's some other things I should tell you Stuart Savage was our judge and I staged everything behind the curtain line <laughs> And so his first comment to me was, why is everything behind the curtain line? (laughs) And so I, you know, it was little things like that. So I don't claim to, you know, because I had all these great experiences, it didn't mean I knew how to make it happen. That's something that I'm continuing to learn every day, you know. Um, But my, my big goal was that I wanted the curtain to be drawn back on junior high students. And I wanted people to be like Pygmalion. You know, Rhinoceros, we did that one. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, no way. These kids can't do it, they're in junior high. And um, my, my, I guess, gimmick, if you wanna call it that, was that I wanted people to forget that these kids were, you know, 12, 13 years old. Um, I wanted them to, to have this sort of, you know, professional weight uh, to them, and, and they were great. And the next year we did Midsummer, we ended up winning again. And um that uh and winning is all great, uh, but it was not ever my intention. Uh and that's what I told my kids too. It didn't matter if we would have come in dead last. I feel so proud of what we did with those seventh and eighth grade uh students during their their seventh and eighth grade years. And during this time I was watching Tim work and one day, right after Thanksgiving break in twenty sixteen, I had just got married because of the election <laughs> and I was afraid of um, you know, what that meant for for people who had same-sex relationships like myself. And Tim called me up and he said, um, if I was interested in coming to Dawson. Um, so, you know, in an earlier interview with Paul Fillingham, you know, Paul told you that he had just adopted two kids and he and his husband were looking at moving back to um, San Antonio and, and that was the case. So I assumed that I was going to work at, alongside Tim. I was going to be like Paul. Right, um, because who wouldn't want to work with Tim? That's what I thought, you know. Uh, well, I don't know how ap- apocryphal I've made this story, but I'm going to tell it to you now. I'd come to find out later that what he was asking me was to take over the program. So, and and I believe I found that out maybe ten or fifteen minutes before I had the interview with the principal. Um, now, again, I might have been, I might have turned that into a cocktail story these, you know, years later, but. Uh, the truth is, I just had the busiest year of my life, and now I was considering taking over a highly successful program from someone uh, who had been not only successful in UIL, but you know the kids were great performers. They did these big musicals, I mean, most amazing production quality, and I was still learning how to make things happen, right. Uh, a lot of people called me crazy, but I felt you know including my husband, mostly my husband, but I felt something inside me say, use this right? Teaching junior high or high school theater in the way that I'm doing today was never in my plans, but it was my chance, I felt, to overcome the notion to be regular, as Uda says, right? So the first two years were really difficult, like any transition. You know, Tim Tim left after the first year and went to Deer Park on an opportunity um, to become the PAC manager avail itself. And I worked with Catherine Daniel, who is great. She's now the head director at Elkins high school. Um, and, and what made the transition difficult in those first years is how I had to define the program, um, according to me. Um, and I think that a lot of teachers who take over programs or who move into, you know, Tim had had a a wonderful opportunity to create Dawson from the ground up and my job was to continue Whatever great things were happening at Dawson into the future Um, and so Crafting the vision of what that would look like over the last three years has been primarily What you know what I wanted to my legacy to be so um, I had the uh, amazing support of Mr. Bell and Kelly Holt, the principal, Terry Zutek, our, our department chair, Roxanne Silva and Katie McCravey are the uh, choir directors. They're amazing. And, and, and Dawson High School is just probably the most amazing place I've ever worked. Pearland ISD is, is so supportive of us. And, and, you know, whereas before I was feeling so ungrateful, you know, to have entered into this, I am so grateful to be at Dawson, and with someone like Cody Edgar now, who is my incredible partner in crime, uh, the assistant director who is quite possibly the funniest human being in the entire world, uh, second only probably to Blake Miner. Uh, and he has a he has a heart of gold and loves the kids, and I'm still writing. I just finished a musical for, uh, for children based on a children's book, and um, a few other, Irons in the Fire, Uh, there's always something on my desk, but I just, that's what brings me to, to Ovation today. And, you know, I have a vision, uh, for how to run the program and, uh, and what it is I want, uh, the future of theater education to look like, and it may not be what everyone else wants, but that's okay because that's what makes me, me, you know? So that's my story That's awesome. <laughs> in 50 no. minutes. Yeah,
1: no, it's great. So then I got to ask you what, uh, I mean, if you still have irons in the fire, um, I know I'm looking at your website right now. It's a mm-hmm. very uh, impressive website. And even though Ovation website is quite impressive too. So either you have a knack of creating them or you have a knack in finding people to create them for you, whichever it is, but, uh, what challenges you now? I mean, like what, what keeps you, what keeps your beak wet and what's, what's getting you going? Is it the the fact that, I mean, k- kind of at this moment and, and if you follow you on Facebook and I, I know you don't follow you, but you know what you post, but if, right. if, if you follow you and, and, and just with most theater educators, we're, we're very bro- vocal right now with uh, uh, how things are being laid out and mind you, as we record this years, will come out in a week and a half. So you never know what TEA is going to come out with. Who knows what's you, going to Yeah, You never know right. what, what our government's going to say, our local, state, even national, because uh, even today the national government said some stuff. But, and you ever, never know what UIL is going to say, especially between now and then. They've got 10 days to screw this up. So um, <laughs> what is it that's going to keep you challenged, assuming everything is normal? Don't, you know, I know that online teaching could be a challenge and things like that. But assuming everything's normal, what what challenges you now? You're a very diverse individual. You have a very unique background. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like you could answer with a lot of things. Maybe it's just, I've got to cook a rigatoni tonight and uh, I don't, sure. I've never cooked rigatoni. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I think the the biggest thing to keep in mind is as we move into a series of unknowns right now is that my my vision for what ovation will be in 3 to 5 years doesn't change based on the pandemic because you know a lot of people are concerned with well what skills are my students going to uh, have deficiencies in Right. Uh, because they aren't able to work actively on building a set or they aren't able to work actively on scene work or, or characterization techniques or whatever, you know, enter the blank there. Um, and, and my approach is um, um, different in the sense that um, the reason I choose to work with students as opposed to professionally at least in this season of my life, is that audiences of professional or repertory companies choose to go to the theater. It is a choice. They choose to be enriched. They choose to have subscriptions. They seek it out. They seek out culture. And we've relied on these institutions in the past to bring about a larger cultural change. Um, But with the advent of social media, I sometimes wonder you know, about the actual reach and efficacy of these institutions, and especially with what they tell our students. So I choose working with students because I think all artists, I profoundly believe, and this doesn't matter if it's a pandemic or not, all artists who want to bring about meaningful change in this society need to be on the front lines in our classrooms. Um, young people walk into my classroom every day with different aspirations. They bring confused minds, overwhelmed hearts. They bring souls in search of healing. And whether they leave whole again, depends upon how much I impress upon them that the arts are a vital and necessary part of being human and of being happy and healthy and well. And that is a huge responsibility. So the delivery of how we instruct our students and what the vision is. Um, This, I can tell you what what my biggest approach and how to make this happen is in three points. Um, It's how we focus the arts uh, in in an ever-changing society. Um, First, kindness and compassion above all else. Um, We can have debates, um, we can have arguments Uh, but there's a lot of noise out there (laughs) in terms of, well, I'm not listening to this or I'm not listening to this, or, you know, this whole idea of, of, cancel culture or whatever. You know, I don't spend a lot of time reading those things because I think terms change, you know, how we, how we treat people ultimately doesn't. So what I try to tell my students is kindness and compassion above all else. If someone is hurting, listen to them. You don't have to have an answer, right? Um, ultimately, our, our leaders right now in, in the school districts and in TEA, you know, we hope that what they're doing is is thinking of all the, the dynamics, thinking about our working families, thinking about our parents who, you know, Our single parents or, you know, our children who have immunocompromised uh, immune systems, you know, compromised immune systems. We're hoping that they place kindness and compassion above all else. But we can't control what they do at the end of the day. What we can control is what we do. And we hope that we can inspire others to choose kindness and compassion above all else. The second point that I try to approach my students with is there is a social role that everyone plays. There's an obligation and a, a responsibility. And whether you are a lawyer, a doctor, whatever, I'm going to call you an artist, right? Because you are an artist in whatever you do. So the social role of the artist is understanding what that is by instilling a commitment to that role, uh, in the student is the, the the primary goal of my education, whether I'm face-to-face or whether I'm virtual. So what ways are we seeking out opportunities that we not only adapt to the changes that are occurring in our society, but influencing them, right? Not being afraid to speak up and participate in democratic discussions, right? Not being afraid to voice your opinions, to oppose things like censorship, in any form to oppose restriction of creative expression. You know, everyone has different ideas about the means of how this happens, but we need to allow ourselves, the social role that we play is enabling those ideas to come to the table and not to, uh, without any sort of judgment, you know, there's there's kindness and compassion. So we can listen as we all try to make sense and uh, create a deeper understanding for the world that we live in. Um, And then the third thing is instilling an importance that art has on our world today as it relates to mental health, uh, especially of our young people. Um, I didn't say this expressly in my long talk about myself, which is my least favorite subject. uh, But, you know, one of the reasons I think I turned to art as a kid was because it was the only way I could get out what was inside of me. Uh, music at the time was the only way I could express myself. And there are so many kids in our school system, young young students who, who don't have a means to express themselves, um, whether it's through art or music or dance or theater. And, um, you know, one of the darkest days of my entire teaching career was my first year at Dawson. Uh, there was a student who attempted suicide in the in the hallway, one of the stairwells, um, by by trying to hang himself, um, and it happened early one morning. And very fortunately, um, a, you know, a teacher was walking by within the first ten seconds of this happening, and and the student was saved. But it was traumatic for so many for um, for our our parents, our students, our community, uh, being there at Dawson in those days that followed really tested your mettle. And so I tell the story of, of the importance of mental health in my own program. And as it relates, I've had students who, you know, have expressed suicide ideation in the middle of a performance. <laughs> and so I would have to leave the, the light board and uh, where I was working and go backstage and talk to them. Um, I'd have to seek out an administrator in the middle of a show. Um, I've had to talk to students late after rehearsal because they're in tears and they don't know what to do with themselves. Um, this is a responsibility that a lot of teachers face. A lot, I mean. I, it doesn't. You nothing I've said. It really may sound extraordinary to some teachers because we play that role as art ed, educators. We we have those students who trust in us more than anything. And by showing them what Mr. You know, I don't mean to sound hokey, but he really is one of my heroes. Is Mr. Rogers? You know, he talks about expressions of care, and what we show students and the expressions of care will save our planet. Our government and our democracy uh, and there must be some truth in that because that's what I at home you know when I got asked to be uh, you know to fill out this essay for teacher of the year at, at, at Dawson high school the question was what is the most pressing issue facing education today and automatically I thought about how do we express care to our students in a way that allows them to express what's inside of them. That is the biggest issue in mental health and in public education today and really in our world. If we can figure out what that is, um, then we will, we will be to something. And that's really what I it must, there must be some truth into that because it's resonated with every audience I've ever brought that point to. And so I'm hoping that that, that's my that's my real goal with Ovation is you know I think people look at our program and they say oh well they're 4A state champions or they're 6A runner ups or you know this last year at Thesp Fest they had six national qualifiers and the state quarterfinalist improv troupe and you know what recognition is great um, but there's a reason why uh, why we're successful on a deeper level. Um, than just the recognition or the awards, because it's, it may be our time today and someone else's time tomorrow. Uh, culturally, we try to make a difference in, in, the, in young students' lives uh, by letting them know that they are a large part of, of something even bigger than themselves, of family, um, of a community, and how they participate in that family and community are our shows right? Are the productions that we put on? But there is, there are deeper, more meaningful connections about why we are alive, by, by, by the work that we do every day. And you know, I, I recently told the story because of Hamilton, uh, Hamilton being on Disney Plus. But, uh, you know, there's a joke running around on Facebook. that's like, how do you know if someone saw Hamilton on Broadway? They'll tell you. Uh, Well, you know, the joke with me is that I I ended up seeing it at the public uh, with a friend of mine. And afterward, you know, I had met Lin-Manuel in several ways before then. But we were just hanging out in the lobby. And I reminded him. And I told this story on Facebook. But, you know, I reminded him how I how we met, and he was like, oh, of course I remember. Now, whether or not he does, I don't know. He's a brilliant man with an amazing memory, but, uh, you know, he then turned to everyone else that was in that lobby. You know, it was Renee Goldsberry and Leslie Odom, the whole crowd, to be digs, and he says, hey, this is John, and he writes musicals, and they're like, hey, you know, and we all kind of just had a, it felt like home, you know, And, and that moment in New York and those moments that I've experienced, of, of the interconnectedness of what we do is really why we do it. And if my students, you know, even the, the students who don't have as great of a skill being an actor or being a designer or whatever, um, you know, but they've explored a part of themselves and expressed a part of themselves in, uh, in ovation that allows them to, to feel access to that. Then I think I've done my job. Mine